you have your copy of the Word of God this morning, we're in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. Book of Hebrews, chapter 10, I invite you to turn there. This morning we're going to look at verses 1 through 18 of Hebrews, chapter 10, as we continue our study through the book of Hebrews. And the title of this message this morning is The Savior We Need for Total Forgiveness. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world... He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. And burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written for me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish a second. And and by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made his footstool of his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Have you ever had a guilty conscience in your life? You know, perhaps you had done something that you should not have done. And you were trying to keep it hidden, but instead you were eaten up with guilt. And you wondered if anyone knew what you had done. And you you feared that the truth may be found out. That's kind of the way a guilty conscience works in our life. It makes you feel guilty and sometimes depressed and sometimes anxious. There are even those in the church that feel this way. Does God truly forgive? What will really happen when I stand before God? Will He punish me for the things that I've done in my life? In 1958, a young Korean student at the University of Pennsylvania finished a night of study and penned a letter to his parents in Korea 
After sealing the letter, he left his apartment to drop it at a corner mailbox. When he returned from the mailbox, a gang of teenage boys attacked him without speaking a word. They kicked him with their shoes. They pummeled him with their fists. One beat him with a lead pipe, the other with a blackjack. And when they had finished their nasty work, they left him mortally wounded. When police found him in the gutter several hours later, he was dead. Philadelphia citizens were shocked at the violence. They cried for vengeance. The district attorney obtained permission to try the offenders as adults and so they could receive the death penalty. Then an incident occurred which changed the entire outlook of the trial. A letter arrived from Korea, signed by the parents of the murdered student and 20 of his relatives. It read in part, Our family has met together. We have decided to petition that the most generous treatment possible within the laws of your government be given to those who have committed this criminal act. To give evidence of our sincere hope contained in this petition, we have decided to save money to start a fund to be used for the religious, educational, vocational, and social guidance of the boys when they are released. We have dared to express our hope with the spirit received from the gospel of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for our sins. I don't know the outcome of the trial. What I do know is that we rarely, if ever, will be challenged to practice the kind of forgiveness shown by that Korean family. I also know that each and every person stands in need of total forgiveness. And today's passage tells us of the Savior that we need for total forgiveness. In these verses, we have more repetition from the author of Hebrews. Because he has already told us the bulk of what he says here in these verses, the author is reaching the climax of his discussion, namely that there is a superior sacrifice. He has mentioned this before, but now he will give a, a contrast to the old covenant sacrifices and he will do so with great clarity. If the reader were to return to Judaism, they would forfeit the benefits that Christ had secured them. His death on the cross fulfilled that, all that the old system pointed to. The Old Testament sacrificial system could not give total forgiveness. But Jesus could, which is why he is the Savior that we need. The Old System, by its design, kept the average worshiper from ever drawing near to God. In Christ, every believer has access to God's presence because of his sacrifice for our sin. And now, in these 18 verses, the author makes it clear what the law and sacrifices could not do and what Christ's sacrifice did accomplish. In verse 1, it says that the law can't make perfect those who draw near. In verse 2, it says the sacrifices can't completely cleanse the worshipers and take away their consciousness of sin. In verse 3, they provided a yearly reminder of sin. In verse 4, they could not take away sin. In verse 10, by the will of God and through the cross of Christ we have been sacrificed once and for all or sanctified once and for all in verse 12 Christ offered one sacrifice for our sins for all time in verse 14 for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified in verse 17 God promises to remember their sins and lawless deeds no more and in verse 18 where there is forgiveness there is no longer an offering for sin and as we track with the author, all these verses add up to this great news that Jesus is the Savior that we need for total forgiveness. In Christ, we receive total forgiveness for sin past, for sin present, 
and for sin in the future. Christ bore the penalty on the cross. He bore the penalty that you and I deserve. There is no catch. He is the Savior we need. Now before we get into the bulk of the message, I want to clarify what I mean when I say sin, past, present, and future are forgiven. What we're talking about is position. And so positionally, sin, past, present, and future are forgiven. That does not mean that we will not sin. Nor does it mean that we should not confess our sin in our daily lives. What it does mean is that our sin does not change our position as forgiven children of God. So let me see if I can illustrate this for us. Your mom will always be your mom. There's nothing that you can do to change that. It does not matter how bad of a person either of you are. She is always your mom positionally. Now she could do something terrible and hurtful. Or you could do something bad. And someone needs to ask for forgiveness so the relationship gets restored and is not hindered. But your mom is still your mom. Now, it is the same spiritually. We will fail the Lord. We will fail the Lord badly. But your failures do not remove you from God's family. We have total forgiveness as the children of God. But to maintain a good relationship in the family, we confess our sins and we ask for forgiveness. The way it is in this passage, or the way this passage is broken down, is into four parts. Verses 1 through 4, we have the powerlessness of the old sacrifices. In verses 5 through 10, we have the provision of a better sacrifices. In verse 11 through, or a better sacrifice. In verses 11 through 14, we have the contrast between the old and the new sacrifice. And then in verses 15 through 18, we see that the only sufficient sacrifice for total Forgiveness And all this points to Jesus being the Savior that we need. So first, let's see the powerlessness of the old sacrifice. Because he spends some time talking about that. The author begins being very forthright and saying that the law is only a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Have you ever looked at your shadow? It's an outline of who you are. It is a silhouette. It's not the real thing. It's, it's unsubstantial. It is for this reason that the old sacrifice only offered imperfect cleansing. It had no real power because it was imperfect. The sacrifice had to be repeated over and over again. It could never make perfect. It reveals that the old sacrifices were powerless to totally forgive sins. If it were perfect, it would not have needed to be repeated. Furthermore, because it can't make perfect, it reveals to us something, and that is this. God demands perfection. And our most, um, our most desperate need is for you and I to be made perfect so that we can stand before a holy God. The sacrifices could never complete the job, the old sacrifices, or finish the work. They had to be offered over and over again. And so they could never fulfill the greatest need of mankind, which was to be made perfect. And therefore, we could never draw close to God because we could never be made perfect. This was clearly evident in the garden when Adam and Eve first sinned. 
as soon as they sin, what they try to do? They try to hide themselves, right? They try to hide from the presence of God because they had done something wrong. If you've ever been a parent, you know exactly what it means when your child tries to avoid you. Or if you ask them what they are doing and they say this word right here, nothing. Right? Then when you finally get their attention, they won't look at you in the eye. Why? Because they're guilty. You ever yell at your dog? They run and hide. Because even a dog has a sense of guilt. They know when they're bad. Church, we have a guilty conscience. We know when we have been sinful and it, and it was displayed in the old sacrifices by repeating the sacrifice for sin, but those sacrifices were powerless to free the conscience. And so, now look at verse 3. The author is arguing that the annual sacrifices were actually a reminder of sins, not a remover of sin. So, so this sacrifice was just a reminder that you were sinful, but it didn't really remove the sin. Every single year, you would bring your offering, and you would go through the ritual again, and then you'd do it again next year, and then again, and then again, and it only reminded you of your sinfulness and never removed your guilt. And so every year, you'd go be reminded of just how sinful you were. That your sin still stood between you and God. That you still could not approach God. Every year was just a reminder that you could not draw close to God. And the closest that you could ever get was the outer court because your sin separated you from God. The blood of animals was powerless to take away sin. Or to make anyone acceptable or to give a person fellowship with God. Now some might say, well... Well, why can't an animal's blood be sufficient? And there are several reasons for that. First, animals and humans have different natures. So how could an animal's life fully represent a man's? It can't. Secondly, animals were not the ones who willfully sinned, rebelled, neglected, ignored, rejected, or cursed God. Therefore, they can't pay the penalty for man. Finally, animals are corrupt, imperfect creatures just like we are. Therefore, an animal can never truly be a perfect sacrifice. Now, with that said, it's interesting that the same word for reminder in verse 3 is the same Greek word used in the Lord's Supper, where Jesus says, Do this in remembrance of me. Philip Hughes makes the point that while we are instructed to examine ourselves and confess our sins before taking or before partaking of the elements, the gospel transforms our remembrance from one of guilt to one of grace. When we take communion, we are reminded that the penalty that we deserve, when we, when we partake together, we are reminded that we deserve death, that our sin was fully placed on Jesus, and His death accomplished what the blood of animal sacrifices could never accomplish. It took away our sin and our guilt Whereas the old sacrifices were powerless. The blood of Jesus is not. And so we see first the powerlessness of the old sacrifice. Secondly, we see the provision of a better sacrifice. The provision of a better sacrifice. In verses 5-7, through seven, we have the author uh, leaning heavily on Psalm chapter 40 verses 6-8. through eight. 
And he attributes these words to Christ as he comes into the world. Now this is interesting because what does it assume? It assumes a pre-existence of Jesus Christ as eternal God. It is revealing that when Christ entered into the world, he knew that his body would be the sacrifice that was pleasing to God and would satisfy the wrath of God. God has prepared a body for Jesus that he would offer as a suitable sacrifice for our sins. This is the provision of a better sacrifice. Notice it does not say that the Father asked the Son for the sacrifice. It doesn't say that. It says that the Father prepared a body for the Son. The Father was asking for obedience. This is about the Father's will and the Son's obedience to the will of the Father. Which is profound. And so in verses 5 through 10, it gives us this great information on the provision of a better sacrifice. First of all, we see that the cross was God's will. The cross was God's will. The only way that Jesus could please God was by doing the will of God, and the cross was God's will. The cross is not an accident. It's not some sort of tragedy that somehow took place, uh, took Jesus by surprise or some sort of big mishap. It's not that Jesus didn't see it coming. Jesus came to do the will of the Father. It says that. He came to be the living sacrifice as the lamb set before the slaughter. That's the whole purpose of why Jesus came. It was not a setback. It was the plan from the beginning. It was God's predetermined plan before the beginning of time to deal with the sins of mankind. God's Son would enter the world as a man in a body designed by God. And He would fulfill the law of God by his complete obedience to the will of God, and he would die as a sacrifice because God's justice demanded a payment for sin. It had to be paid somehow. Now here's the mystery of all that. Here's the mystery of the fact that the cross was God's will and that Jesus was going to the cross no matter what. The whole complete mystery, even though God ordained the cross, even though he ordained every last little detail of the cross, even though it was prophesied to happen, God is in no way responsible for the sin of those who crucified Jesus. That's the mystery. Listen to what Acts chapter 4 verses 27 to 28 say. You may remember this when you preach through Acts. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. He says, the, uh, the writer of Acts says, whatever your hand and your plan had predestined it. So these people did what you predestined to take place. Jesus came into the world specifically to go to the cross. In so doing, he not only provided the sacrifice for our sin, but he also gave us an example of complete obedience to the will of God. In verses 7 and 9, we have these words repeated. I have come to do your will, O God. Jesus not only knew the will of God, but he was 
determined to do the will of God. Luke tells us that when the time was near for him to go to the cross, Jesus did not run away from the will of God. He instead set his face to go to Jerusalem in Luke 9.51. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus went alone to pray where he was in such agony that his sweat became like drops of blood. And he prayed to the Father, not my will, but your will be done. I don't think that we can fathom the difficulty of the sinless Son of God being made sin. For us, I don't think that we can truly understand the suffering that Jesus went through. But here's the thing. He was determined to obey the will of God. It did not matter how difficult it was. It did not matter that it was a, a broad, uh, uh, a, a terrible display of suffering and pain and unbearable pain. He was going to be obedient to the will of God. And this is a lesson for us that we too should obe- be obedient to God's will. No matter the cost. In the midst of suffering and pain. Heartache and heartbreak. In the midst of temptation and hurt. We must remain obedient to God's will. We don't wait until the moment of temptation is on us. We have to decide now that we will be obedient to God's will. Then, when you're faced with temptation... You'll be ready for obedience. Not only was the cross God's will, but we also see that Christ's perfect obedience permanently does away with the old sacrificial system. Christ's perfect obedience permanently does away with the old sacrificial system. Look at the latter part of verse 9. He does away with the first to establish the second. The emphasis... Uh, or there's this emphasis on what has already been said above, which is that the old sacrifice for sin was inadequate. In verses 5 through 6, when we read that God did not desire sacrifice, that was a common theme in the Old Testament. And it was to say that God did not desire sacrifice for the sake of sacrifice. In other words, they should not sacrifice if it were not out of a repentant heart. God is not pleased when people simply go through outward emotions or outward motions when our hearts harbor sin that we're not willing to forsake. So when we go through the motions of worship, but our hearts are are really not close to God or really want nothing to do with God, like when we go to church sometimes or even partake of communion and sing worship songs that that sound great, and hey, at least we're in church, but when we're doing those things and living a life of disobedience to God or have unconfessed sin in our life, but we go to church and pretend like everything's okay. Like, eh, it's no big deal. Everything's good in my life. Which was a common thing, just to sacrifice for the sake of sacrifice, just go through the motions. Well, I go to church because it's what I do. However, that's not really the author's main point. The main point is that Christ's sacrifice was perfect. Because Christ is perfect. Therefore, when he offered himself as a sacrifice for sin, 
It was the perfect sacrifice because he is perfect. And being perfect, it completed, it fulfilled, and it finished the old sacrificial system forever. Perfect sacrifice. It satisfied the holiness and the righteousness and the justice of God once and for all. This is why I can't accept the view that there's going to be some sort of animal sacrifices in the millennium. Because it just doesn't make any sense. The cross of Christ fulfilled the old system. And there is no reason to go back to the old system. Thirdly, through Christ's obedience, we are sanctified. Through Christ's obedience, we are sanctified. This is what verse 10 tells us. We have been sanctified. Now this is a reference to the inward cleansing of sin. This is to be sanctified positionally like I talked about there at the beginning. It is a restoration to the favor of God and being made acceptable to God. What is interesting is the verse starts off with, and by that will. That's how the verse starts, verse 10. And by that will. Whose will is it referring to when it says, and by that will? It is referencing the will of the Father. That is what the whole passage, this whole passage is about and focused on is the will of the Father. However, the will is distinguished from the offering in verse 9. The will speaks of the eternal agreement between the Father and the Son in connection with the Son's obedience. In verse 10, and by that will gives us the sphere in which the sacrifice of Christ was offered and the sphere in which the elect of Christ are sanctified. The point we are sanctified through Christ's obedience, not our obedience. It is saying that through Christ's obedience, we are made positionally perfect before God. His death has put away sin. It's purged our conscience and set us apart for God. In the death of Christ, we see the punishment that was due to us, but we also see the removal of that punishment, and it puts us near to God, which we could never obtain on our own. Our sanctification, in this sense, is the real purification of our nature. It means that we have access to God. Because He doesn't look down and see us as sinners. But He sees us as children. What has caused this sanctification? Some would say, well, faith causes this sanctification. Yes, faith does play a role. We place our faith in Christ, even though the faith is a gift from God. Some would say, it is the word of the Spirit that causes this sanctification in us. And yes, that does play a role as the Holy Spirit works in our lives. We do become more and more like Christ. But that is, that is different than this sanctification. Some would say it is Christ. And yes, the redemptive work of Christ has earned for us the gift of His Spirit to renew us. However, in this case of this sanctification that's talking about, which makes us new creatures, Look at what the cause is. The cause is the sovereign, eternal will of the Father. That's what it's talking about. And by His will, or by this will. The, whose will? The will of the Father. The will of the Father causes my sanctification. He is the cause. That's why verse 10 starts, 
by that will. Listen, all that the will of God has ordained for our good is communicated to us through Christ's obedient sacrifice, which sanctifies us. You are sanctified by the sacrifice of Christ, and that's applied to your life solely by the sovereign will of God. That's only understood and apprehended by the Holy Spirit who enlightens us and opens our heart. It is all and completely the work of God to bring about His will. And so we've seen the powerlessness of the Old Testament sacrifice and that they could not completely remove sin. And we've seen the provision of a better sacrifice through Jesus Christ who sanctifies us. Now let's see the contrast between the old and the new sacrifice. In verse 11, we read that every priest stands daily, repeatedly, offering sacrifice. They were never done with their work, as those sacrifices could never take away sin. Now, interestingly enough, the one who brought the perfect sacrifice, Jesus Christ, does not stand but he completed his duties, and now he sits at the right hand of the Father. The earthly priest could never sit because their job was never done. Jesus was the perfect sinless Son of God, and he made the perfect sacrifice for our sin, and he was able to, to, to sit because his work was complete. Secondly, the priest made the same sacrifice over and over again. But Jesus made one sacrifice for sin. Jesus was perfect and eternal. Animals are not. They could never take away the sins of the people on themselves and bear the guilt. They could not be the perfect sacrifice, but that is what is so glorious about the gospel. Because Jesus is the perfect sacrifice and the eternal sacrifice that takes away our sin and guilt and punishment. Thirdly, the old sacrifice never took away sin, but Jesus triumphs over all enemies. The enemies are all forces of evil, including sin, disease, corruption, death, and Satan. There's no way that the sacrifice of animals could ever conquer evil and give people a clear conscience. Evil enslaves us. Sin grips us. And the sacrifice of an animal can't take that away. But Christ can. And he does. When Christ died, he displayed the supreme act of obedience. He was obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Now he's exalted and he rules and reigns with all power and authority. The author is making it clear that anyone who stands against Christ is headed for certain defeat and judgment. Lastly, the old sacrifices failed to perfect man. But the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ perfects forever those who are set apart for God. The verse says that he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What great truths we have in that statement. As believers, we are perfected. God has forgiven all our sins. And he's placed the perfect righteousness of Christ on us. Secondly, it says, all those who are being sanctified, that is 
practice. As believers, we are to be growing in holiness. Positionally, it's granted to us instantly. Practically, it's worked out in our lifetime of growth and obedience to the Lord. But it also tells us that if there is no growth and holiness in our life, then we should question whether we've truly been perfected positionally. If there's no growth in my life whatsoever, then I should be asking, am I truly positionally sanctified? In other words, our position, by position as a sanctified, holy follower of Christ, if that is my position, that position should be reflected in practice. If not, there is a problem. Why do you think that if somebody walks around, you know, and, and lives a sinful life and has no desire to follow after Christ, we should, we should at least say, hey, what is going on in your life? Because practically, you are not expressing what is true supposedly positionally. And some say, well, you're questioning people's salvation. Yeah, I am. Because Scripture's clear. If practically doesn't show position, then I should say, I don't know if that person knows the Lord, and therefore I should be sharing the gospel with him. The author wraps this section up by revealing, fourthly, the only sufficient sacrifice for total forgiveness. And here the author is quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 through 34. In verses 15 through 18, he attributes this prophecy of Jeremiah to the Holy Spirit who inspires all scripture. And God promises to put his laws upon his people's hearts and to write them on their minds. This actually is very interesting because someone would possibly claim that since the author of Hebrews has made such an emphasis on the setting aside of the law, then people would just uh, in their life succumb to lawlessness. Living, They would just live however they wanted to, but the author heads that, cuts that idea off by making it clear that God's people are not marked by disobedience, but the opposite. They are marked by a heart that's obedient. That is the point of what the author is saying. The sanctified are those who God puts his laws on their hearts. So if you're sanctified, God writes his law on their heart, and, and writes them on their mind. In other words, the evidence of your sanctification is like I just said. The evidence that you are sanctified is your obedience. Now what's interesting is the author says the Holy Spirit bears witness to us. The Holy Spirit is at work within the life of the believer. And it is proved that Jesus takes away our sin. The Holy Spirit is a witness to the covenant between God the Father and God the Son. To which the Son would be obedient to the will of God the Father. And purchasing the redemption of his own. In other words, the Holy Spirit was present when the covenant was made. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit bore witness to when our mediator, Jesus Christ, sufficiently completed his sacrifice and sat down at the right hand of the Father. Furthermore, the Holy Spirit bears witness to the complete work of sanctification in the hearts and minds of every believer. Of those for whom Christ died. The emphasis is on the unity and the presence of the Godhead for our sanctification. 
The author of Hebrews is saying, hey, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they came together. The covenant's made together. They're all present when this takes place. For your sanctification, all three are involved. That is what the Holy Spirit is a witness to. But how does he bear witness to us? How does the Holy Spirit bear witness in our life? Well, the first first method is through the written word, and in this case, through the prophet Jeremiah. The author had made the argument that Christ's one sacrifice replaces the many sacrifices of Judaism. The author has made the argument about the finality of the sacrifice when he sat down at the right hand of the Father, and now he proves what he is saying by the witness of the Holy Spirit through the word of God in Jeremiah chapter 31, which proves the conclusion of the author. But I believe there's a second way the Holy Spirit bears witness to us. He bears witness through the written word objectively, but he also bears witness through the application of that word to us subjectively. Every effect has a cause, right? That's what we learn. A tree is known by the fruit it produces. You don't pick oranges from an apple tree. So it is with every Christian. The Holy Spirit applies the word to our heart and it bears out in our lives. Every working in our life was purchased by the obedience and the blood of Jesus Christ and there will be evidence in our life of being followers of God. Being followers of Christ. And the author gets to his point directly when he makes this statement. I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. Now that's not to say that God is absent-minded or that God is somehow forgetful. But rather, as Romans 8, chapter 1, verse says, there is now no condemnation for our sin. Our sin is totally forgiven because Jesus is the only sufficient sacrifice for total forgiveness. The payment for our sin has already been made by Christ. Our sins are not reckoned to our account, but instead the righteousness of Christ is reckoned to your account. And so the conclusion is, where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. The old sacrifices are now rendered useless. They are not obsolete because, or they are now obsolete because they, uh, um, they no longer can cover your sin, but they're not obsolete in the sense that they pointed to Jesus Christ, who has completely fulfilled them. Jesus is the Savior we need for total forgiveness. If you have total forgiveness through Jesus Christ, why in the world would you return to anything else? That's the point. If you have total forgiveness, if Jesus truly is the one, the Savior we need for total forgiveness. And if you have total forgiveness in Jesus Christ, which every person desperately needs, because we all stand guilty, the whole world needs total forgiveness. And that should be our proclamation. You need forgiveness? It's found in Jesus Christ. If that is the case, then why would we return to anything else? Then why would we think, oh, well, this is better, or that's better. And the author's point is, why in the world would you go back to Judaism sacrificing the animals because they don't forgive you? 
It's like saying, stop it. Knock it off. That's not going to do you any good. You've already been forgiven through Jesus Christ. Why try something else? It's like today. We try to work our way for forgiveness, right? You do something bad. Well, I got to do something good. No! That's not the way it works. It's why we have the Lord's Supper together instead of an altar up here where you come and bring your animal sacrifice. Can you imagine if we had a little altar built up here? Go ahead and bring in your sacrifices, folks. We'll slaughter them for you. Jesus Christ has accomplished everything that was necessary for total forgiveness. In closing, I want to speak about a few things that our text proves to us. First, our text proves that there is no such thing as purgatory. There is no such thing as purgatory. Purgatory is a made-up doctrine that says our sins must be purged away after death. This is a denial of the gospel of grace and a denial of the death of Jesus Christ and places us in a wrong position. The death of Christ places us in perfect standing with God. Not in some sort of sub-perfect standing. And so these, these verses prove the idea of purgatory is a lie. It's not found in Scripture anywhere. It's made up so, you, so we can find a way to make you earn your way. Second thing the text proves or does away with is the practice known as penance. Penance is the idea that good deeds that are prescribed by the church will sanctify you from sin and cause you to spend less time in, guess where? Purgatory. So this is coupled with indulgences, which is why Martin Luther had such a problem with Catholicism Roman Catholicism and its indulgences. They would be sold to remove the full punishment or the temporal punishment of sin. So you could go buy an indulgence that would remove the temporary or full punishment or uh, of temporal sins. And so you could purchase that and then you're all good. Now you got less time in purgatory, which is a made-up doctrine in the first place. You see, it was an ever in this, well, you're going to go to purgatory. You've got to earn your way out of there. And the only way you can earn your way out of there is, you, hey, i got this indulgence to sell you. I can make some money if I preach that kind of thing. i got something to sell you. Our text does away with both those. There is no such thing as purgatory. There is no such thing as penance. You know why? Because Christ paid it all. It's already been paid. You can't pay it. Anything that detracts from the total sufficiency of Christ's sacrificial death is absolutely and utterly unbiblical. 
His death obtained total forgiveness for believers. His death perfected us for all time. His death sanctified us once and for all. His death takes away completely the guilt of our sin. To believe anything else is just like going back to Judaism. Why would anyone return to something inferior or substitute something inferior for the death of Christ? Our faith as followers of Christ should cry out, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for perfecting me in your sight. Thank you, Lord. It says, Lord, I hate my sin. I hate the fact that I mess up. I hate the sin that I struggle with. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. And I long to do what is pleasing in your sight. And I want to advance towards holiness. And I thank you, Lord, that you are the Savior that I need that paid the price for my sin. And we cry out to Him because we're weak. And we need His strength. And the entire hope of our Christian life is in Christ. And if we want true communion with God, we need forgiveness. And who can provide that forgiveness? Jesus. Because He is the Savior that we need for total forgiveness. We can sit in church and we can hear that we need Jesus and we can never act on it. And the only hope that we have in Jesus is He's the only way for total forgiveness. And he's the only way for you to be close to God. And if you want to live forever in his presence, nothing but the blood of Jesus will offer it. Christ and his sufficient sacrifice on the cross provide total forgiveness for all our sins. And anything that devises human works to atone for our sin is a mere shadow. Anything that says, well, i got to add to it. It's just a shadow. We trust in Christ alone for salvation. Solus Christus was the cry of the Reformers. Christ alone. Christ alone. No other way will get you there. Have you done that today? Have you trusted in Christ alone for your salvation? Not Christ plus something. Not Christ in my baptism. Not Christ in my good works. Not Christ in my penance or my indulgences or whatever it might be. Have you trusted in Christ alone for your salvation? If you say, well, yeah, pastor, I've done that, then I would ask you, how is your obedience? Are you living a life of obedience to Christ? Remember what we said. Positionally, before God, we are perfect, but practically, we are being sanctified. And so I ask you, are you growing in holiness this morning? If you reflect on your life and there's no growth, then there's a reason to question where you are at positionally. And if you reflect on your, your life and there is growth, but perhaps it's 
marginal growth. Perhaps you've stunted your growth because of sin in your life, because of your refusal to be obedient to His Word, or because of your failure to gather together with the saints, because of just being lazy, being a lazy Christian. There's a lot of lazy Christians. Maybe you don't study your Word. Maybe you just don't, like, I don't want to go deep. That's too hard. There are many reasons why our practical sanctification can be slowed. Maybe you're a believer and you need to repent today. Speed up that growth process and say, Lord, I'm sorry. I repent. Will you forgive me? He offers total forgiveness. So you need to change the direction you're heading and head a different direction. Maybe that's you. If the Lord's spoken to you this morning, I'll give you the chance to respond. I'll be standing right down front. Maybe you need prayer this morning. Maybe you need to come to know Christ and place your faith in Christ alone for your salvation. I'd be glad to talk to you. I'll pray with you and we can we can talk later. Or you can come down and say, hey, I need to talk to you later. Whatever it might be. And, and I'll have that conversation with you afterwards. Maybe this morning you just need some prayer. Maybe you're not where you should be. Maybe your sanctification process is slowed by your own fault because you're living a life of sin. I'll be glad to pray with you about that. I'm not a priest. You don't need to come confess your sin to me. But we can definitely talk about it and pray together. I'm I'm open for that. However the Lord's spoken, I pray that you'd respond this morning. Let's close in prayer.